Okay, good evening. Uh, tonight I'll be continuing on with the readings, and for the next uh, few evenings I'll uh, just be reading a collection of uh, both suttas and also uh, some teachings by Lumpasamedo. And I just chose a, a collection of teachings that I, I thought really um, were a good example of this this theme of back to the basics. Um, so the you know, the suttas that I, I chose, I uh, I think they're all you know really good examples of just the Buddha really presenting the basics of his teachings in uh, really memorable memorable stories. So tonight I just wanted to begin with uh, a very famous sutta from the Majjhima Nikaya that probably many people are familiar with. And this is the uh, debate with Satchika. And this is one of the really dramatic events of the Buddha's life and a really memorable uh, story. And I, I think it's also a very good example of the Buddha, um, yeah, really just coming back to the basics of his teaching and um, using the, um, yeah, just the very simple, simple arguments to uh, to debate debate Satchika. So this is from the Majjhima Nikaya and its Sutta number thirty-five. Thus ever heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Vesali in the great wood in the hall with the peaked roof. Now on that occasion, Satchika, the Niganta's son, was staying at Vesali, a debater and a clever speaker, regarded by many as a saint. He was making the statement before the Vesali assembly, I see no recluse or Brahmin, the head of an order, the head of a group, the teacher of a group, even one claiming to be accomplished and fully enlightened, who would not shake, shiver, and tremble, and sweat under the armpits if he were to engage in debate with me. Even if I were to engage a senseless post in debate, it would shake, shiver, and tremble if it were to engage in debate with me. So what shall I say of a human being? Then when it was morning, the venerable Asaji, dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Vesali for alms. As Satchika, the Niganta's son, was walking and wandering for exercise in Vesali, he saw the venerable Asaji coming in the distance and went up to him and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and amiable talk was finished, Satchika, the Niganta's son, stood at one side and said to him, Master Asaji, how does the recluse Gotama discipline his disciples? And how is the recluse Gotama's instruction usually presented to his disciples? This is how the Blessed One disciplines his disciples, Agiwesana, and this is how the Blessed One's instruction is usually presented to his disciples. Bhikkhu's material form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, formations are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent. Bhikkhu's material form is not self, feeling is not self, perception is not self, formations are not self, Consciousness is not self. All formations are impermanent. 
All things are not self. That is how the Blessed One disciplines his disciples, and that is how the Blessed One's instruction is usually presented to his disciples. If we have heard what the recluse Gotama asserts, we have indeed heard what is disagreeable. Perhaps some time or other we might meet Master Gotama and have some conversation with him. Perhaps we might detach him from that evil view. <clears throat> now at that time, 500 Lichavis had met together in an assembly hall for some business or other. Then Satchika, the Niganta's son, went to them and said, Come forth, good Lichavis, come forth. Today there will be some conversation between me and the recluse Gotama. If the recluse Gotama maintains before me what was maintained before me by one of his famous disciples, the bhikkhu named Asaji, then just as a strong man might seize a long-haired ram by the hair and drag him to and drag him fro and drag him roundabout, so in debate I will drag the recluse Gotama to and drag him fro and drag him roundabout. Just as a strong brewer's workman might throw a big brewer's sieve into a deep water tank, and taking it by the corners, drag it to and drag it fro and drag it roundabout, so in debate I will drag the recluse Gotama to and drag him fro and drag him roundabout. Just as a strong brewer's mixer might take a strainer by the corners and shake it down and shake it up and thump it about, so in debate I will shake the recluse Gotama down and shake him up and thump him about. And just as a sixty-year-old elephant might plunge into a deep pond and enjoy playing the game of hemp-washing, so I shall enjoy playing the game of hemp-washing with the recluse Gotama. Come forth, good Lichavis, come forth. Today there will be some conversation between me and the recluse Gotama. Thereupon some Lichavis said, who is the recluse Gotama that he could refute Sachika the Niganta's son's assertions? On the contrary, Sachika the Niganta's son will refute the recluse Gotama's assertions. And some Lichavis said, Who is Sachika the Niganta's son that he could refute the Blessed One's assertions? On the contrary, the Blessed One will refute Sachika the Niganta's son's assertions. Then Sachika the Niganta's son went with five hundred Lichavis to the hall with the peaked roof in the great wood. Now on that occasion a number of bhikkhus were walking up and down in the open. Then Sachika the Niganta's son went up to them and asked, Where is Master Gotama staying now, sirs? We want to see Master Gotama. The Blessed One has entered the great wood, Agiwesana, and is sitting at the root of a tree for the day's abiding. Then Sachika the Niganta's son, together with a large following of Lichavis, entered the great wood and went to the Blessed One. He exchanged greetings with the Blessed One, and after this courteous and amiable talk was finished, sat down at one side. Some of the Lichavis paid homage to the Blessed One and sat down at one side. Some exchanged greetings with him, and when this courteous and amiable talk was finished, sat down at one side. Some extended their hands in reverential salutation towards the Blessed One and sat down at one side. Some pronounced their name and clan in the Blessed One's presence and sat down at one side. Some kept silent and sat down at one side. When Sachika, the Niganta's son, had sat down, he said to the Blessed One, I would like to question Master Gotama on a certain point if Master Gotama would grant me the favor of an answer to the question. Ask what you like, Agiwesana. 
How does Master Gotama discipline his disciples? And how is Master Gotama's instruction usually presented to his disciples? This is how I discipline my disciples, Agiwesana, and this is how my instruction is usually presented to my disciples. Because material form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, formations are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent. Because material form is not self, feeling is not self, perception is not self, formations are not self, consciousness is not self. All formations are impermanent, all things are not self. That is the way I discipline my disciples, and that is how my instruction is usually presented to my disciples. A simile occurs to me, Master Gotama. Explain how it occurs to you, Agiwesana, the Blessed One said. Just as when seeds and plants, whatever their kind, reach growth, increase, and maturation, all do so in dependence upon the earth, based upon the earth, and just as when strenuous works, whatever their kind, are done, all are done in dependence upon the earth, based upon the earth. So too, Master Gotama, a person has material form as self, and based upon material form he produces merit or demerit. A person has feeling as self, and based upon feeling he produces merit or demerit. A person has perception as self, and based upon perception he produces merit or demerit. A person has formations as self, and based upon formations he produces merit or demerit. A person has consciousness as self, and based upon consciousness he produces merit or demerit. Agiwesana, are you not asserting thus, material form is myself, feeling is myself, perception, formations, consciousness is myself? I assert thus, Master Gotama, material form is myself, feelings, perception, formations, and consciousness are myself. And so does this great multitude. What has this great multitude to do with you, Agiwesana? Please confine yourself to your own assertion alone. Then, Master Gotama, I assert thus, material form is myself, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness are myself. In that case, Agiwesana, I shall ask you a question in return. Answer it as you choose. What do you think, Agiwesana? Would a head-anointed noble king, for example, King Pasendidi of Kosala or King Ajatasattu, Vedihiputta of Magadha, exercise the power in his own realm to execute those who should be executed, to fine those who should be fined, and to banish those who should be banished? Master Gotama, a head-anointed noble king, for example, King Pasendidi of Kosala or King Ajatasattu, Vedihiputta of Magadha, would exercise the power in his own realm to execute those who should be executed, to fine those who should be fined, and to banish those who should be banished. For even these communities and societies, such as the Vajians and the Malians, exercise the power in their own realm to execute those who should be executed, to find those who should be fined, and to banish those who should be banished. So all the more, so should a head-anointed noble king. He would exercise it, Master Gotama, and he would be worthy to exercise it. What do you think, Agiwesana? When you say thus, material form is myself, do you exercise any such power over that material form as to say, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus? When this was said, Sachaka the Nigantasan was silent.
A second time the Blessed One asked the same question, and a second time Satchika the Niganta's son was silent. Then the Blessed One said to him, Agiwesana, answer now, now is not the time to be silent. If anyone, when asked a reasonable question up to the third time by the Tathagata, still does not answer, his head splits into seven pieces there and then. Now on that occasion, a thunderbolt-wielding spirit, holding an iron thunderbolt that burned, blazed, and glowed, appeared in the air above Sachika the Niganta's son, thinking, if this Sachika the Niganta's son, when asked a reasonable question up to the third time by the Blessed One, still does not answer, I shall split his head into seven pieces here and now. The Blessed One saw the thunderbolt-wielding spirit, and so did Sachika the Niganta's son. Then Sachika the Niganta's son was frightened, alarmed, and terrified. Seeking his shelter, asylum, and refuge in the Blessed One himself, he said, Ask me, Master Gotama, I will answer. What do you think, Agiwesana, when you say thus, Material form is myself. Do you exercise any such power over that material form as to say, Let my form be thus, let my form not be thus? No, Master Gotama. Pay attention, Agiwesana, pay attention how you reply. What you said afterwards does not agree with what you said before, nor does what you said before agree with what you said afterwards. What do you think, Agiwesana, when you say thus, feeling is myself? Do you exercise any power over that feeling as to say, let my feeling be thus, let my feeling not be thus? No, Master Gotama. Pay attention, Agiwesana, pay attention how you reply. What you said afterwards does not agree with what you said before, nor does what you said before agree with what you said afterwards. And he goes through the same argument with perception, formations, and consciousness. What do you think, Agiwesana? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Master Gotama. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, Master Gotama. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself? No, Master Gotama. What do you think, Agiwesana? Is feeling, perception, formations, consciousness, permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Master Gotama. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, Master Gotama. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, Master Gotama. What do you think, Agiwesana? When one adheres to suffering, resorts to suffering, holds to suffering, and regards what is suffering thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself, could one ever fully understand suffering oneself or abide with suffering utterly destroyed? How could one, Master Gotama? No, Master Gotama. What do you think, Kagiwesana? That being so, do you not adhere to suffering, resort to suffering, hold to suffering, and regard what is suffering thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. How could I not, Master Gotama? Yes, Master Gotama. It is as though a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, were to take a sharp axe and enter the wood. And there he would see a large plantain trunk, straight, young, with no fruit bud core. Then he would cut it down at the root, cut off the crown, and unroll the leaf sheaths. 
But as he went on unrolling the leaf sheaths, he would never come even to any sapwood, let alone heartwood. So too, Agiwesana, when you are pressed, questioned, and cross-questioned by me about your own assertions, you turn out to be empty, vacant, and mistaken. But it was you who made this statement before the Vesali assembly. I see no recluse or Brahmin, the head of an order, the head of a group, the teacher of a group, even one claiming to be accomplished and fully enlightened, who would not shake, shiver, and tremble, and sweat under the armpits if he were to engage in debate with me. Even if I were to engage a senseless post in debate, it would shake, shiver, and tremble if it were to engage in debate with me. So what shall I say of a human being? Now there are drops of sweat on your forehead, and they have soaked through your upper robe and fallen to the ground. But there is no sweat on my body now. And the Blessed One uncovered his golden-colored body before the assembly. When this was said, Sachika the Niganta son sat silent, dismayed, with shoulders drooping and head down, glum and without response. Then Dumuka, the son of the Lichavis, seeing Sachika the Niganta son in such a condition, said to the Blessed One, A simile occurs to me, Master Gotama. Explain how it occurs to you, Dumuka. Suppose, venerable sir, not far from a village or town, there was a pond with a crab in it. And then a party of boys or girls went out from the town or village to the pond, went into the water and pulled the crab out of the water and put it on dry land. And whenever the crab extended a leg, they cut it off, broke it, and smashed it with sticks and stones so that the crab, with all its legs cut off, broken, and smashed, would be unable to get back to the pond as before. So too, all Sachaka the Niganta's son's contortions, writhings, and vacillations have been cut off, broken, and smashed by the Blessed One, and now he cannot get near the Blessed One again for the purpose of debate. When this was said, Sachaka the Niganta's son told him, Wait, Dumukha, wait. We are not speaking with you. Here we are speaking with Master Gotama. Then he said, let be, Master Gotama, that talk of ours and of other ordinary recluses and Brahmins. It was mere prattle, I think. But in what way is a disciple of the Master Gotama one who carries out his instruction, who responds to his advice, who has crossed beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, and become independent of others in the teacher's dispensation? Here, Agiwesana, any kind of material form whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. A disciple of mine sees all material form as it actually is, with proper wisdom, thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Any kind of feeling whatever, any kind of perception whatever, any kind of formations whatever, any kind of consciousness whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a disciple of mine sees all consciousness as it actually is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. It is in this way that a disciple of mine is one who carries out my instruction, who responds to my advice, who has crossed beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, and become independent of others in the teacher's dispensation. 
Master Gotama, in what way is a bhikkhu an arahant, with taints destroyed, one who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached his own goal, destroyed the fetters of being, and is completely liberated through final knowledge? Hiragiwesana, any kind of material form whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu has seen all material form as it actually is with proper wisdom, thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself, and through not clinging he is liberated. Any kind of feeling whatever, any kind of perception whatever, any kind of formations whatever, any kind of consciousness whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu has seen all consciousness as it actually is, with proper wisdom, thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself, and through not clinging he is liberated. It is in this way that a bhikkhu is an arahant with taints destroyed, one who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached his own goal, destroyed the fetters of being, and is completely liberated through final knowledge. When a bhikkhu's mind is thus liberated, he possesses three unsurpassable qualities, unsurpassable vision, unsurpassable practice, and unsurpassable deliverance. When a bhikkhu is thus liberated, he still honors, respects, reveres, and venerates the Tathagata thus. The Blessed One is enlightened, and he teaches the Dhamma for the sake of enlightenment. The Blessed One is tamed, and he teaches the Dhamma for taming oneself. The Blessed One is at peace, and he teaches the Dhamma for the sake of peace. The Blessed One has crossed over, and he teaches the Dhamma for crossing over. The Blessed One has attained Nibbana, and he teaches the Dhamma for attaining Nibbana. When this was said, Sajika the Nigantasan replied, Master Gotama, we were bold and impudent in thinking we could attack Master Gotama in debate. A man might attack a mad elephant and find safety, yet he could not attack Master Gotama and find safety. A man might attack a blazing mass of fire and find safety, yet he could not attack Master Gotama and find safety. A man might attack a terrible poisonous snake and find safety, yet he could not attack Master Gotama and find safety. We were bold and impudent in thinking we could attack Master Gotama in debate. Let the Blessed One, together with the Sangha of Bhikkhus, consent to accept tomorrow's meal from me. The Blessed One consented in silence. Then, knowing that the Blessed One had consented, Sachika the Nigantasan addressed the Lichavis. Hear me, Lichavis, the recluse Gotama, together with the Sangha of good Bhikkhus, has been invited by me for tomorrow's meal. You may bring to me whatever you think would be suitable for him. Then, when the night had ended, the Lichavis brought five hundred ceremonial dishes of milk rice as gifts of food. Then Sachika the Nigantas' son had good food of various kinds prepared in his own park and had the time announced to the Blessed One. It is time, Master Gotama, the meal is ready. Then, it being morning, the Blessed One dressed, and taking his bowl and outer robe, he went with the Sangha of Bhikkhus to the park of Sachika the Nigantas' son and sat down on the seat made ready. Then, with his own hands, Sachika the Nigantas' son served and satisfied the Sangha of Bhikkhus, headed by the Buddha with the various kinds of good food. 
When the Blessed One had eaten and had put his bowl aside, Satchika, then Niganta's son, took a low seat, sat down at one side, and said to the Blessed One, Master Gotama, may the merit and the great meritorious fruits of this act of giving be for the happiness of the givers. Agivesana, whatever comes about from giving to a recipient such as yourself, one who is not free from lust, not free from hate, not free from delusion, that will be for the givers. And whatever comes about from giving to a recipient such as myself, one who is free from lust, free from hate, free from delusion, that will be for you. Okay, so that's the end of the sutta. And are there any comments that people would like to share or questions for the senior monks? The thunderbolt wielding deity, I always have my eyes open for possible, you know, uh, things that got adapted into the Mahayana. And that the name of that thunderbolt wheeling deity is Vajrapani. So it made me think that uh, maybe that's where the Vajrapani Sutra came from. Somehow it was linked with that. But uh, you never know, th these things get lost in translation. But uh, some of these names that come up in the Pali Canon are very, very similar. It seemed to have been adapted into Mahayana as well. Kind of a, Kind of interesting to note. Also, I think the lifelike nature of that sutta is pretty amazing. Like he's like, Satchika, speak for yourself. Like, like that's something you would just normally say to somebody. Like, speak for yourself. You don't. You can't speak in for all these, all these uh, other people. You can't say what view they hold because thinking of how common that is to try to say, well, I think this, and you know, Ajnanaco agrees with me, or you know, something like to give more credence to. What, or, or the whole Sangha agrees with me to kind of give more weight to your assertion. All right, so uh, yeah, maybe I can um, now just read a little bit of a Dhamma talk from Lumpal Samedo, and um, over the next few evenings, I'll uh, probably end up sharing just a few, uh, few Dhamma talks uh, from the collected teachings of uh, and this one this evening will come from volume one. Okay, and this Dhamma talk is titled Happiness, Unhappiness, and Nibbana. The goal of Buddhist meditation is Nibbana. We incline towards the peace of Nibbana and away from the complexities of the sense realm, the endless cycles of habit. Nibbana is a goal that can be realized in this lifetime. We don't have to wait until we die to know if it's real. The senses and the sense world are the realm of birth and death. Take sight, for instance. It's dependent on so many factors, whether it's day or night, whether or not the eyes are healthy, and so on. Yet we become very attached to the colors, shapes, and forms that we perceive with the eyes, and we identify with them. Then there are the ears and sound, when we hear pleasant sounds, we seek to hold on to them, and when we hear unpleasant sounds, we try to turn away. With smells, we seek the pleasure of fragrances and pleasant odors, and try to avoid unpleasant ones. With flavors, we seek delicious tastes and try to avoid bad ones. And touch, how much of our life is spent trying to escape from physical discomfort and pain, and seeking the delight of physical sensation. Finally, there is thought, the discriminatory consciousness. 
it can give us a lot of pleasure or a lot of misery. These are the senses, the sense world. It is the compounded world of birth and death. Its very nature is dukkha. It is imperfect and unsatisfying. You'll never find perfect happiness, contentment, or peace in the sense world. It will always bring despair and death. The sense world is unsatisfactory, and so we only suffer from it when we expect it to satisfy us. We suffer when we expect more from it than it can possibly give. Things like permanent security and happiness, permanent love and safety, hoping that our life will only be one of pleasure and have no pain in it. If we could only get rid of sickness and disease and conquer old age. I remember that some years ago in the States, people hoped that modern science would be able to get rid of all illnesses. They'd say all mental illnesses are due to chemical imbalances. If we can just find the right chemical combinations and inject them into the body, schizophrenia will disappear. There would be no more headaches or backaches. We would gradually replace all our internal organs with nice plastic ones. I even read an article in an Australian medical journal about how they hope to conquer old age. As the world's population kept increasing, we'd keep having more children and nobody would ever grow old and die. Just think what a mess that would be. The sense world is unsatisfactory, and that's the way it's supposed to be. When we attach to it, it takes us to despair, because attachment means that we want it to be satisfactory. We want it to satisfy us, to make us content, happy, and secure. But just notice the nature of happiness. How long can you stay happy? What is happiness? You may think it's how you feel when you get what you want. Someone says something you like to hear and you feel happy. Someone does something you approve of and you feel happy. The sun shines and you feel happy. Someone makes nice food and serves it to you and you're happy. But how long can you stay happy? Do we always have to depend on the sun shining? In England, the weather is very changeable. Happiness about the sun shining in England is obviously very impermanent and unsatisfactory. Unhappiness is not getting what we want, wanting it to be sunny when it's cold, wet and rainy, people doing things that we don't approve of, having food that isn't delicious, and so on. Life becomes boring and tedious when we're unhappy with it. So happiness and unhappiness are very dependent on getting what we want or what we don't want. But happiness is the goal of most people's lives. The American Constitution speaks of the right to the pursuit of happiness. Getting what we want, what we think we deserve, becomes our goal in life. But happiness always leads to unhappiness, because it's impermanent. How long can you really be happy? Trying to arrange, control, and manipulate conditions so as always to get what we want, always hear what we want to hear, always see what we want to see, and never have to experience unhappiness or despair is a hopeless task. It's impossible. We feel happy when we're healthy, but our human bodies are subject to rapid changes and we can lose our health very quickly. Then we feel terribly unhappy at being sick, at losing the pleasure of feeling energetic and vigorous. Happiness is unsatisfactory, it's dukkha. It's not something to depend on or make the goal of life. Happiness will always be disappointing because it lasts so briefly and then is succeeded by unhappiness. It is always dependent on so many other things. 
Thus the goal for the Buddhist is not happiness because we realize that happiness is unsatisfactory. The goal lies away from the sense world. It is not rejection of the sense world, but understanding it so well that we no longer seek it as an end in itself and no longer expect it to satisfy us. We no longer demand that sense consciousness should be anything other than an existing condition which we can use skillfully according to time and place. We no longer attach to it or demand that sense contact should be always pleasant or feel despair and sorrow when it's unpleasant. Nibbana isn't a state of blankness, a trance where you're totally wiped out. It's not nothingness or annihilation. It's like a space. It's going into the space of your mind where you no longer attach, where you're no longer deluded by the appearance of things. You no longer demand anything from the sense world. You just recognize it as it arises and passes away. Being born in the human condition means that we must inevitably experience old age, sickness, and death. One time a young woman came to our monastery in England with her baby, who had been badly ill for about a week with a horrible, racking cough. The mother looked totally depressed and miserable. As she sat in the reception room holding the baby, it turned red in the face and started screaming and coughing horribly. The woman said, Oh, venerable Semedo, why does he have to suffer like this? He's never hurt anybody. He's never done anything wrong. Why? What did he do in some previous life to have to suffer like this? But he was suffering because he was born. If he hadn't been born, he wouldn't have to suffer. When we're born, we have to expect these things. Having a human body means that we have to experience sickness, pain, old age, and death. This is an important reflection. We can speculate that maybe in a previous life, the baby liked to choke cats and dogs or something like that and has to pay for it in this life, but that's mere speculation and it doesn't really help. What we can know is that his suffering is the comic result of being born. Each one of us must inevitably experience sickness and pain, hunger, thirst, the aging process of our bodies and death. That's the law of karma. What begins must end, what is born must die what comes together must separate. We're not pessimistic about the way things are, but we observe and so we don't expect life to be other than it is. Then we can cope with life, endure it when it's difficult, and delight in it when it's delightful. If we understand life, we can enjoy it without being its helpless victims. How much misery there is in human existence because we expect life to be other than what it is. We have romantic ideas that we'll meet the right person, fall in love, and live happily ever after, never fight, have a wonderful relationship. But what about death? You may think, well, maybe we'll die at the same time, but that's just hope. And then there's despair when your loved one dies before you do, or runs away with the dustman or the traveling salesman. You can learn a lot from small children because they don't disguise their feelings. They just express what they feel in the moment. When they're miserable, they start crying, and when they're happy, they laugh. Some time ago, I went with a layman to his home. When we arrived, his young daughter was very happy to see him. Then he said to her, I have to take Venerable Semedo to Sussex University to give a talk. As we walked out of the door, the little girl turned red in the face and began screaming in anguish. So her father said, It's all right, I'll be back in an hour. But she wasn't old enough to understand, I'll be back in an hour. 
The immediacy of separation from the loved meant immediate anguish. Notice how often in our life there is that sorrow at having to separate from something we like or someone we love, from having to leave a place where we really like to be. When you are really mindful, you can see the not wanting to separate the sorrow. As adults, we can let go of the sorrow immediately if we know we can come back again, but it's still there. For several months, I traveled around the world, arriving at airports where somebody always met me with hello, and then a few days later, it was goodbye. And there was always this asking, come back, and I'd say, yes, I'll come back. And so I've committed myself to do the same thing again. We can't say goodbye forever to someone we like. We say, I'll see you again, I'll phone you up, I'll write to you, or until next time we meet. We have all these phrases to cover over the sense of sorrow and separation. In meditation, we just note, observe what sorrow really is. We don't say that we shouldn't feel sorrow when we separate from someone we love. It's natural to feel that way. But as meditators, we begin to witness sorrow so that we understand it, rather than trying to suppress it, pretending it's something more than it is, or just neglecting it. In England, people tend to suppress sorrow when somebody dies. They try not to cry or be emotional. They don't want to make a scene. They keep a stiff upper lip. Then when they start meditating, they can find themselves suddenly crying over the death of someone who died 15 years before. They didn't cry at the time, so they end up doing it 15 years later. When someone dies, we don't want to admit our sorrow or make a scene because we think that if we cry, we're weak or it's embarrassing to others. So we tend to suppress and hold things back, not recognizing the nature of things as they really are, not recognizing our human predicament and learning from it. In meditation, we allow the mind to open up and let the things that have been suppressed and repressed become conscious. Because when things become conscious, they have a way of ceasing rather than just being repressed again. We allow things to take their course to cessation. We allow things to go away rather than just pushing them away. Often we push certain things away from us, refusing to accept or recognize them. If we feel upset or annoyed with anyone, if we're bored or unpleasant feelings arise, we look at beautiful flowers or the sky, read a book, watch TV, do something. We're never bored fully consciously, fully angry. We don't recognize our despair or disappointment because we can always run off to something else. We can always go to the refrigerator, eat cakes and sweets, listen to the stereo. It's so easy to absorb into music, away from boredom and despair, into something that's exciting, interesting, calming or beautiful. Look at how dependent we are on watching TV and reading. There are so many books now that they'll have to be burnt. There are useless books everywhere, produced by writers who have nothing worth saying. Today's not-so-pleasant film stars write their autobiographies and make a lot of money. Then there are the gossip columns. People get away from the boredom of their own existence. They're discontent with it. It's tediousness by reading gossip about movie stars and celebrities. We've never really accepted boredom as a conscious state. As soon as it comes into the mind, we start looking for something interesting something pleasant. But in meditation, we allow boredom to be. We allow ourselves to be fully, consciously bored, utterly depressed, fed up, jealous, angry, disgusted. 
we begin to accept into consciousness all the nasty, unpleasant experiences of life that we have suppressed from consciousness and never really looked at, never really accepted, not as personality problems anymore, but just out of compassion. Out of kindness and wisdom, we allow them to take their natural course to cessation, rather than just keeping them going round in the same old cycles of habit. If we have no way of letting things take their natural course, we're always controlling, always caught in some dreary habit of mind. When we're jaded and depressed, we're unable to appreciate the beauty of things because we never really see them as they truly are. I remember an experience I had in my first year of meditation in Thailand. I spent most of that year by myself in a little hut and the first few months were really terrible. All kinds of things kept coming up in my mind. Obsessions, fears, terror and hatred. I'd never felt so much hatred. I'd never thought of myself as someone who hated people. But during those first few months of meditation, it seemed I hated everybody. I couldn't think of anything nice about anyone. There was so much aversion coming up into consciousness. Then one afternoon I started having this strange vision. I thought I was going crazy, actually. I saw people walking off my brain. I saw my mother just walk out of my brain and into emptiness, disappear into space. Then my father and my sister followed. I actually saw these visions walking out of my head. I thought, I'm crazy, I've gone nuts. But it wasn't an unpleasant experience. The next morning when I woke from sleep and looked around, I felt that everything I saw was beautiful. Everything, even the most unbeautiful detail, was beautiful. I was in a state of awe. The hut itself was a crude structure, not beautiful by anyone's standards, but it looked to me like a palace. The scrubby-looking trees outside looked like a most beautiful forest. Sunbeams were streaming through the window onto a plastic dish, and the plastic dish looked beautiful. That sense of beauty stayed with me for about a week, and then, reflecting on it, I suddenly realized that that is the way things really are when the mind is clear. Up to that time, I'd been looking through a dirty window, and over the years, I'd become so used to the scum and dirt on the window that I didn't realize it was dirty. I'd accepted the way it was. When we become used to looking through a dirty window, everything seems gray, grimy, and ugly. Meditation is a way of cleaning the window, purifying the mind, allowing things to come up into consciousness and letting them go. Then with the wisdom faculty, the Buddha wisdom, we observe how things really are. This is not just attaching to beauty, to purity of mind, but actually understanding. It is wisely reflecting on the way nature operates so that we are no longer deluded into living habitually. So we're just about out of time, so I think I'll just end there, and there's a little bit more of this talk to go, so I can uh, finish this up tomorrow. And does anyone have any comments or questions? All right, thank you.